Well, I don't know how much you've thought about what your final words should be at the end of your life before you die. But I can't imagine any words being more important than what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life. Think about it. As an old man in prison in Rome, on death row for the gospel, awaiting certain death, he said these words just before his own execution. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen carefully. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is now laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me in that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Did you hear that? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You see, that, that or, or some version of that should be your final words before you step off this planet into eternity because at the end of the day, it does not so much matter that we began the race but that we finish the race of faith and persevere to the end. Agreed? Because you understand, we must enter through the narrow gate. Because broad is the way and wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter through it. But small is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few are those who find it. So the question is, how, how do we have a faith that does not fizzle out in the end? How do we not crash and burn our lives on the jagged rocks of sin and, and destruction? How is it that we can be certain that we can persevere to the very end and see God? How is this possible? And the answer is, listen very carefully, the path of holy perseverance, firm until the end is the path of radical dependence on God through his word. The word is the answer. The, the scriptures are the guarantee. Or maybe I should clarify, radical dependence on that word is the guarantee. That is the answer. The narrow way that leads to life is the path of urgent dependence on God through his word. Because that famous well-known phrase, once saved, always saved, is true. It really is true. But it doesn't go nearly far enough. It skips the whole part in the middle that states that perseverance of our faith firm until the end requires a tenacious dependence on God through his word that keeps us from drifting and falling away. And you see, a die-hard faith that perseveres firm until the end is exactly what Psalm 119 talks about. It's exactly the point of the text, and the reason for that is because Psalm 119 wants you to know that to persevere in holiness, you must master the virtue of desperation. That the part of the essence of what it means to believe is that we come to grips with the fact that all we are by ourselves, on our own, are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. Or to put it positively, God supplies the power through his word to do what we, what he commands. You see that God sustains the faith of his elect through the power of the sacred text. But you can tell, can't you, the, the, the very center of our faith, the core reactor of our faith, the jugular vein of our faith is the very book that we're holding in our hands. Because you see, what it is not is just some book, but a portal to the very power and presence of God himself, which is precisely the point of Psalm 119. I mean, you know by now that Psalm 119 is a poem, a 
highly structured, carefully crafted poem of 176 verses, and every single line in that verse is about one solitary subject, the supremacy and the centrality, the absolute sufficiency of the word of God. Psalm 119, you understand has 176 reasons why the word of God should have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. And the reason why it should is because you live in a world that is not interested in encouraging you in your faith. There is a devil out there who, who is, whose sole aim is the destruction of your faith in Christ. And as if that's not bad enough, you possess in your chest the most lethal instrument of evil on the face of the planet called the human heart. And so what that means is the odds are stacked against us. We're not going to make it to the end. We're not going to finish the race. We are not Going to keep the faith. Unless. Unless we use God's word in the way God wants us to use our word, which is as a means of survival. So let's go to the text, shall we? Maybe you have notes this morning. Maybe you don't, but either way, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text three urgent expressions, three urgent expressions of radical dependence necessary for a life of Christ-exalting righteousness. That's where we're going. Three urgent expressions of radical dependence necessary for a life of Christ-exalting righteousness. And urgent expression number one is this. First, you must plead with God to renew your mind. You must plead with God to renew your mind. And here's what's really profound about verses 33 through 40. Not only do all eight verses in this section all begin with the Hebrew letter Hey, or H in English, but every single one of these verses, except for the last one, get this, begins with an urgent request of helpless dependence. Seven out of the eight verses begin with an urgent request of helpless dependence. Hebrew grammarians call the form of these verbs he, uh, causative active verbs. Meaning, the writer is asking God to make something happen, to cause something to happen in his life. In fact, in fact, everything the poet prays here, you could legitimately insert the word cause into your translation. Verse 34, verse 33, it says, teach me, but you could legitimately say, cause me to learn. Verse 34, give me understanding, but you could legitimately say, cause me to understand. Verse 35, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Cause my heart to be inclined, do you see? That's why I'm talking about radical dependence this morning, because that is exactly the issue on the table for the psalmist. See, what these verses are, you understand, these are urgent expressions of radical dependence, which is the only way to persevere in holiness, firm until the end. In verses 33 and 34, you notice they are connected. They are connected by the theme of needing God's help to understand God's word, which is literally the foundation of all holiness and authentic life change. Look at the text. Look what he says. He says, teach me, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding or cause me to understand, and I will keep your law, and I will keep it with all of my heart. Do you see the connection? He's asking in two different ways for divine help in understanding the meaning of the sacred text. He sits himself down, as it were, before the podium of Yahweh as a learner, as a pupil, as a disciple, as a student, sitting down before Yahweh as the ultimate professor, the divine instructor. In verse 33, he literally says, quite literally says, Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Which is interesting, isn't it? 
He, he views Yahweh himself as the instructor of his own word, which, of course, he is. And this doesn't negate the need for human preachers and teachers because they also are the means through which God teaches us his word. But rather the poet, what he's doing is expressing radical dependence upon Yahweh to be his ultimate instructor in and through all other preachers and teachers. In other words, at the end of the day, all right understanding of God's word is a gift from God himself. Which doesn't mean we don't need to think hard about the text, because we do. You need to be greedy for the greater riches of the Bible. Digging and sweating and clawing at the text with our minds to see what it is that the living God has to say. But when all all is said and done, however, in and through our meditation, when you understand the text, that is a gift from God himself. So do you feel the knife-edge tension upon which we're to walk here? You are to study the text like crazy, laboring over the word to see what God has to say. On the other hand, you are to do so on your knees, as it were, pleading with God to cause you to see what's there in the text because at the end of the day, right understanding is the means to all holy living. If you don't know the text... You can't be transformed by the text. You can't apply what you don't know. You cannot be what you have not understood. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is the great sanctifier of our lives. Absolutely. But you understand that the holy chisel that he uses to carve our lives into the image of Jesus Christ is his word. It's not called the sword of the Spirit for nothing. So the obvious question is this morning, how is your Bible reading going? And and by Bible reading, I don't mean in some legalistic way where all I care about is that you check the box. Rather, I mean, do you strive for meaningful, heartfelt, desperate dependence upon God as you meditate on the sacred text? Because that's exactly how the Bible wants you to read the Bible. Is that how you read the Bible? Is there in you the anticipation that when you sit down to read that you are about to hear the voice of the living God? Do do you have a sense of desperation knowing that you need God's help to know God's word? Because look at the end of verse 33. Look what happens when we have a God understanding of the text. Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes. Notice, and I will keep it to the end. Do you see it? The byproduct of desperate dependence on God to reveal to us the meaning of the word. When this happens, when Yahweh causes me to see the meaning of the sacred text, when he protects me from my own interpretive bias and blindness and opens my eyes to the meaning of the text, I will keep it to the end. Meaning what? Meaning life long holiness, and perseverance to the very end. Because you see the evidence, the evidence of true transformation is not merely that we made a profession of faith one day, but that we persevere through all suffering and temptation into the very end of our lives so that we can say with the psalmist and with the apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept faith but to get there we need new minds which is why the writer prays what he does in verse 34 look what he says cause me to understand and I will keep your law and I will keep it with all of my heart do you see what he's asking cause me to see God Cause me to understand what's just there in the text. Because when that happens, when there is a God-awakened conviction to what the text means, which is what he's asking for, inevitably it produces profound life change and transformation. Or as the poet puts it, I will keep your law and I will keep it with all of my heart. 
So you see it, right? What, what the word of God unleashed in his life was not some half-hearted, hesitant, begrudging obedience, but consuming, passionate, radical obedience with all of his heart. Because you understand, God has zero interest in mere external conformity to his word when we would much rather be sinning. No, what, delight the heart, what delights the heart of God, what thrills the heart of God is passionate delight to do what God demands. That's exactly why the psalmist prays what he does. The question is, is that your desire also? Do you want to keep his law with all of your heart? What I'm asking is, are you a fine print Christian? In big, bold letters, in a big, bold headline, you declare your faith and allegiance to Christ. But in the fine print of your heart, maybe you secretly say that some areas of your life will remain under your dominion. Some areas of your life are just going to remain under your jurisdiction. God can't have that. God can't touch that. Is that where you are this morning? Because as I said last week, if, if that's where you are, you might only be a few steps and a couple years away from total apostasy. But you don't have to go there. You don't have to go down that road, and you must not either, because get this, Jesus Christ is always just there. In his word, ready to meet you, ready to provide what you need so that you can persevere in passionate holiness, firm until the end. And where that all begins is when you get a new mind and a God-given, awakened understanding of what the text means. And that's the first urgent expression of radical dependence necessary for a life of Christ-exalting righteousness, which brings us to urgent expression number two. Number two, you must plead with God to renovate your life. You must plead with God to renovate your life because as I began to prepare to preach on Psalm 119, as I began to reabsorb Psalm 119 and all that it had to say, it all of a sudden dawned on me the life-changing potential contained in this psalm. What I mean is, as I took it all in, as I thought about the lofty and exalted holiness that this psalm both, both describes and commands, I realized, get this, that if you even just kept one stanza of this psalm, just one stanza of eight verses, if you just kept one of those you literally would be the godliest person on the face of the earth. You would. Think about it. Just, just, just one. I, I really mean it. Pick any group of eight verses in this psalm, and if you were to obey just one of those groups, even, even to near perfection, make no mistake, you would be the most humble, godly, Christ-exalting person on the face of the planet. problem is, the problem is, although we are responsible to keep Psalm 119, we can't keep Psalm 119 because on our own, at our best, we are but spiritual paraplegics. And any estimation of ourselves that we have that are higher than that, and we are living in a dream world, which is exactly what drives the psalmist to pray what he does in verse 35. Look at the text. Make me, he says, literally, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For in it I take pleasure. You know what that is? That's one of the most radical expressions of helpless dependence found in the pages of Scripture. And that's precisely the way that we should pray in our lives. Because... The Apostle Paul did say in Romans 7, did he not? There is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. And what he meant was his ability to be holy. And did not Christ say in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing? Isn't that what he said? That's exactly what he said. 
And that's what drives the psalmist to pray, make me, cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. In other words, I need you, God, to intervene and supply what I need. I need you to supply the very power to do what you command. What the psalmist prays here is not the abdication of his responsibility, but the admission of his depravity and his need for sovereign grace. He's fully responsible to obey. He knows that that doesn't change. But he is also fully responsible to pray and to plead for the grace to make him obey. My question is, is that how you pray also? Because, I mean, what are these verses doing on the page if they are not the very paradigm that you are to use and pray and plead with God's power in your life? You see, a paraplegic is responsible to ask his caretaker for help for absolutely everything. This is moment by moment dependence upon the caretaker and anything less than that would be foolish and immoral. And it's the exact same way with us. I mean, and does this not show the profound generosity of God that he actually wants us to pray this way? I mean, I've said this before. God is not like Pharaoh who commands us to make bricks without straw and then beats us when we don't meet the quota. No, no, God supplies in his son, through his word, all the power we need to do what he commands. And then he's got the audacity to reward us for everything done in dependence upon his son. That's who God is. That's what the Christian life is. Not a willpower religion, but a divinely empowered connection to the living God through his word. And yet inquiring minds want to know, what's the motive of the psalmist? Why is he praying this? Why is he asking for this? What drives him to want to walk the path of God's commands? Look at the text. Notice very carefully. Cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. Why? For in it I take pleasure. Would you have expected that? That what he wants out of this whole deal is pleasure, joy, and pleasure, and delight. Why does he want that? Because he rightly understands that the battle for his holiness is simultaneously the battle for his happiness. He understands that the fight for purity is simultaneously the fight for pleasure. That the more sanctified he is, the more satisfied he is. That the path of God's commandments is not the obstacle to his joy, but the very opportunity for his joy. So do you see the sacred message, the, 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 poet of, the message of the sacred poet here? Desperate dependence leads to radical obedience in which is found our highest happiness. Little flock, my question is, what, what ails you this morning? What, what troubles you this morning? What fears, what struggles, what burdens what anxieties, what sins are tempting you to veer off the pleasure-filled path of God's commands because here you not merely have the permission but even the responsibility to plead with God to make you obey. What you do is you just weave this into your prayer life. You do. What you do is you just pray this in the morning as you walk out the door. You, you launch this prayer to the throne room as you face temptation. That's why it's there in the text for you to take it and use it in the trenches of life. Don't you see, the greatest weapon you have on the pleasure-filled path of perseverance is not any strength that lies within you, but radical dependence on God through his word. But you notice in verse 36, the writer digs a little deeper. He moves beneath the behavior on the surface to the, the uh, uh, heart that produces the behavior. And it's radical and liberating. Look at what he says. 
He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart, he says, or cause my heart to be inclined. Inclined to what? Inclined to his testimonies. Inclined to his word. What is he asking? You know what he's asking. You know exactly what he's asking. He's pleading with God to bend the very longings and desires and cravings of his soul to hunger for God's word instead of the shallow streams of iniquity. Because I don't know if you knew this about me, but I confess to the great anger of many that I absolutely detest eggs. My least favorite food on the planet. I mean, the absolutely least favorite food on the planet. Call me crazy, but I just don't like to eat food with the consistency of snot or, depending on how you cook them, a sweaty wrestling mat. I mean, unless they're baked into a cake or cookies, they are runny or gooey or smelly, gag-inducing. My appetite is not inclined to them. You understand. You cannot rewire my brain to make me all of a sudden start loving eggs. But you can, however, have the wires of your heart rewired so that you start loving God's word as the feast of your soul. And we know you can because that's exactly for what he prays. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Because he knows knows that he can't be trusted. He knows that on his own, he will meander and wander into the polluted streams of sin and self-glory. He knows that inside his chest is the most lethal instrument of destruction known to man called the human heart. Therefore, he needs God to transform the taste buds of his souls to, to keep him from pursuing a path that would otherwise lead to his destruction. And so the question is this morning, did you know that? I mean, not to sound overly negative, but did did you know that you cannot be trusted? That you cannot trust yourself? That Judas Iscariot, the traitor, lurks within your chest? That Jezebel, the harlot queen, lies just beneath our ribcage? That without the mediating grace of Jesus Christ on our own, we will always be inclined to what God has forbidden. That's precisely what drives the poet to pray. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Transform the taste buds of my soul so that I hunger and thirst for your word. Because if you don't, if you don't do that, the gravitational pull of my soul will always be to dishonest gain. Isn't that what he said? It's exactly what he said. Look at the contrast. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Do you see that? The opposite of appetite for God's testimonies is what? Dishonest gain. Which means he's talking about money here. He's talking about greed here. He's talking about materialism here. He pits the two against one another as if to warn us that either we will find our supreme satisfaction in God through his word or we will automatically gravitate towards the seductions of greed and wealth. And that's exactly what he's saying. Church, this is really serious. This is, this is really serious, not because money is inherently evil, but it is inherently dangerous. I mean, we have the opposite of the Midas touch. Remember the Greek myth about Midas and everything he touched turned to gold? We have the opposite of that. Because you see, our hearts are so easily infatuated with wealth that all the gold that we touch can easily turn into idols that destroy us. And you remember, don't you, the the chilling words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10? I think it's in your notes. It says, those who desire to get rich, those who desire to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare 
and, and, and many harmful and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Think about his words. For the love of money is a root of all the evils, of all the evils, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Church, I've got to ask you, do, do you see any of that? In your life? Is your heart inclined toward greed and gain? Can you see in your life the growing cancer of discontentment? Are there any warning signs in your life that you are beginning to wander away from your faith as you hunt down the American dream and and financial security? Do you love money, in other words? How would you know if there were? How would you know if there were any warning signs? How would you know if, if you were beginning to love money? How would you know? Well, you would know when you think about who you are and what you crave when you are all alone by yourself and no one can see you except God because make no mistake, the God that you worship is what you think about most when you are in solitude. So what do we do? We live in an economy. We need money to survive. It's not wrong to have a paycheck. It's not wrong to ask for a raise. In fact, I'll even up the ante. It's not even wrong to enjoy non-essential luxuries in this life. There is even a way to enjoy those for the glory of God. Rather, the question is, how do we be freed from greed and the magnet of materialism? How exactly do we persevere in our faith firm until the end and not plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction? That is the question. And the answer is, the answer is, you have got to love something more than money in order to not love money. Put it another way, you've got to find something that glitters more than gold in order to not be infatuated with gold. And the only thing that fits that description is Jesus Christ himself through the word. Because you remember Psalm 1910, don't you? That the word of God is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's, it's exactly Psalm 119, verse 16. In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice as much as in all riches. It's Psalm 119, verse 27. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Here is the treasure. Here is the prize. But finally, notice where he goes in verse 37. He's still talking about the need for God to renovate his life. And notice that he moves from the feet to the heart, to the eyes. And he says, turn away my eyes. Or you could render it, cause my eyes to not look at worthless things. Revive me in your way. I mean, you could tell what he's asking, can't you? He's asking for the intervention of God's power in real time as he moves through the trenches of life, bombarded on every side by temptation that seeks to allure and entice him. That's what he's asking. Because he knows, he knows that when in the morning when he closes his Bible, or rather when he rolls up his scroll, that he is about to enter into a world filled with shava, worthless things, deceitful fraudulent, empty pleasures that seek to persuade us that they can do what Jesus Christ alone can do, namely satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. And he prays, he prays because he knows himself all too well. He knows that that his eyes will trigger the tentacles of lust and greed and coveting and pride and discontentment. And, And so what does he do? He cries out with an expression of radical dependence even for where his eyes go because he knows the issue is not his pupils or lenses or his corneas. No, what we gawk at and covet and lust is always, always, always a heart issue. So the obvious question is, how are you 
doing with your eyes? With lust? With porn? With greed? With gold? With discontentment? What are the vain things in life that charm you the most? What is it outside these walls? I mean, in just 15 minutes from now, you're going to walk out this door and you're going to go out there into a world. What are the things out there that most easily grab your attention and pull you away from Christ? Because you have to understand, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. No matter what it is, it is possible. It is possible to control what your eyes do and it 100% depends on your relationship to God's word. Because the question is not, do you read it? Or, or do you believe some true things that are in it? But do you cling to it moment by moment with white-knuckled tenacity? Or as Christ put it in John 15, 5, are you a branch that abides in the vine? Which is what he means when he says at the end of verse 37, when he says, revive me. Or more accurately, cause me to live in your way. That, that's what the Hebrew says. Cause me to live in your way. And there it is again, that, that radical dependence language, which is the only way to do the Christian life. All he's asking for is that the sacred text would shape and govern who he is in the most private and secret moments of his life. And do you know how to do that? Do, do, do you know how to make the word of God the most pervasive influence in your life? You need to do four things. You must read the word, of course. And in real time, you must recall the word. And you must recite the word. And you must rely on the power of the word. And that, that is what we need to persevere in our faith until the end, which brings us to the third urgent expression. Urgent expression number three, you must plead with God to rekindle new desires. You must plead with God to rekindle new desires. And I truly believe that one of the healthy uses of our God-given imagination, God gave you an imagination, I think you should use it, but one of the healthy uses of our God-given imagination is to play out in our minds what would happen if we were to destroy our lives with sin. You ever do that before? Play out an imaginary sequence of events, what would happen if you blew up your own life with sin. I mean, imagine what would happen if you got entangled in an adulterous relationship and you got caught. What would that be like? What would that happen? Play out the scenario. What, what would it be like if you got exposed in adultery? Imagine the initial terror and horror of being caught. We know what that feels like. Imagine the look on the face of your spouse. Looks on the faces of your family when they find out first the shock, then the hurt, then the anger, then the tears. Imagine the public shame and the humiliation for you, for your family, for your church. Imagine the permanent shattering of trust, the, the permanent shattering of your reputation. I mean, you're never going to lift this down. You realize that, right? Imagine the broken hearts of everybody who knows you. Imagine the hours of excruciating conversations that you're going to have to have with friends and family and coworkers and with your elders. I mean, we're going to want to talk to you about this where you have to confess again and again and again the selfish, idolatrous act that led to the ruin of your life and the destruction of your entire family. And worst of all, imagine the, the, the public shame and reproach that this would bring to Christ, the, the mockery that it would make him to the world. Your credibility, at least for a while, as an ambassador for the gospel is effectively over. I mean, who's going to listen to you? Who wants what you're selling? I mean, a lot of good it did for you. You see? And in that scenario, if that were to happen, in that scenario, you would wish, you would so wish that you could do something to turn back time and make it so that it did not happen, but it will be too late. You 
played with fire and you got burned and now you live with it. But you don't have to go down that road. <laughs> you know, there is a better way. You don't have to go down that road and you must not either. That there is a way of escape. And the foolproof way of escape in the Bible is called, get this, fearing God. Fearing God is the way to not train wreck our life and derail our life on sin and, and, and temptation. And the poet tells us that in verse 38. Look at the text. He says, establish your word to your servant, get this, as that which produces the fear of you. Maybe your version says reverence, but the word there in Hebrew, yere, is fear. As the word, the word is that which produces fear, and, and there it is, fearing God. Fearing God. And when we think about fearing God, there's usually three questions that come to the surface. Number one, what does it mean to fear God? Number two, why would we even want to fear God? And then number three, how is the fear of God produced in our lives? Those are the questions, and let's answer those one at a time. Number one, what does it mean to fear God? Because I'll admit, fearing God is a tough sell. Right? Loving God, we get. Trusting God, we embrace. But, but fearing God, this, this just doesn't seem compatible with the rest of the Christian life. I mean, how do you love a God that you're supposed to fear? Fear and love just don't seem compatible with the rest of the Christian life. And yet, if that's what you're thinking, the problem is not in that you are required to fear God. The problem is in how you're defining what it means to fear God. Because to fear God does not mean that you fear him like a bloodthirsty monster. No. It's not the kind of fear that you have of, a, of an abusive, unstable father. No. It's not the kind of fear that you would have of cancer or viruses or, or uh, rapists lurking in shadowy parking lots. It's not that, not even close. Rather, the fear of God is, get this, the fear of God is the raw, delicious terror that you taste in your soul when you begin to understand the magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. When you begin to grasp the towering heights of the majesty of God, the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. To fear God, you understand, means that you have a profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where you are, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. In other words, to fear God means that you tremble before him as the treasure of your soul. Which makes it a patently obvious, number two, why you would want to fear God. I mean, why would you want this? Well, the, the scriptures give actually lots of reasons, lots of fringe benefits of fearing God. For instance, it is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7. It is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10. It, it provides healing to the body and refreshment to the bones, Proverbs 3, 7, and 8. It produces holiness in our lives, Proverbs 16, verse 6. And according to Ecclesiastes 12, 30, fearing God is the very meaning of life itself. It is what we were made to do so the question is do you fear God what I'm asking is do you tremble before God as the treasure of your soul how, how would you know how would you know if you did fear God well, you'd ask yourself these kinds of questions number one are there some sins that you would never do at church but you would do somewhere else Number two, who are you and what do you do when no one's around and no one is watching you except God? Number three, if you knew that you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible and no one would ever find out about it or know about it except God, would you do it? And then number four, is the only thing that keeps you back from certain behaviors or sins, the fear of getting caught and not 
who God is because that is a world of difference and how you answer those questions determines if God is your God or people are your God. Which brings us to question number three. How is the fear of God produced in our lives? How do we grow? How do we cultivate this healthy trembling of God as the treasure of the soul? And, and, and you already know the answer because we're in Psalm 119, but I want you to know it and feel it and believe it and love it. Look at the text at the end of verse 38. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces the fear of you. There it is. The, the word is the answer. The word is that which is meditated on the soul. That is the agent of God that produces holy reverence for God. That's what he means when he says, establish your word to your servant. He means cause me to be gripped by who you are, to the gargantuan vision of who you are in the pages of scripture. Because I'll just tell you, unless we see God this morning, I mean, really see him, Unless we see the God who spoke galaxies into existence, who numbers the stars, who became a man, who calmed the sea with his voice, who was slain for sinners, who rose from the dead, who holds the universe into being, who will come again to slay his enemies and establish his kingdom on this planet. Unless we see this God, unless we are captivated by this God, we will always just be casual and lukewarm and profoundly susceptible to the sins that would otherwise destroy us. You understand that, don't you? And broken record by see God you need to see God and by that see him in the pages of scripture. But you see, I think the psalmist did what we did at the beginning. Back to our little adultery dilemma. I think he did what, he, what we did. I think he used his God-given imagination to imagine what it would be to, to destroy his life on the jagged rocks of sin. And he definitely does not want to do that because look what he says in verse 39. He says, turn away my shame or my disgrace. Turn away my disgrace, which I dread. Why? For your decrees are good. See, this is a man who knows that a single sin allowed to live in his life is like a rattlesnake in his bed. This is a man who knows that, that a, a single drop of poison pollutes the entire bottle of wine. This is a man who knows that, that sin is like playing with fire and the, the little flames and the embers are easy enough to justify it, but the problem is sin is the most unstable element in the universe. You give it space and room to grow and breathe and it's just a matter of time before it explodes out of control and destroys you. And therefore he prays, turn away my disgrace, which I dread. In other words, intervene with your sovereign power and prevent me from doing what would otherwise destroy me, he says. And yet the question is, how would God come through for him? How would God answer his prayer to keep him from the path of ruin and misery? Because God already provided the answer. Look at the end of verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. How? How would God do this? What had God provided? Look what he says. For your decrees are good. That's the answer. The goodness of God's decrees. The goodness of his word. Do, do you see? The only safeguard and security against self-destructing our lives with sin is the desperate, tenacious clinging to the goodness of God's decrees. Why? Because the decrees of God possess the very goodness of God. And therefore, reading them, studying them, clinging to them, meditating on them, depending on them, trusting in them, getting them absorbed into the bloodstream of the soul is the only, and I mean the only way to avoid imploding your lives with the atom bomb of sin. I'm almost done here. 
The question is, do you have a rattlesnake in your bag? Are there drops of poison in your wine glass? Are you tolerating the little flames and embers of sin in in your life because the psalmist knew where that would lead to shame and disgrace and reproach and yet there is a better way than that in fact the only better way is the goodness of God's decrees and so you realize what the psalmist is doing don't you and I close with this you realize what he's doing he is meditating isn't he he's meditating on the supremacy and the centrality and the sufficiency of the word of God so that all he can say in verse 40, notice, it breaks the pattern. Verses 33 through 39, they're all these urgent requests of radical dependence. Verse 40, he breaks the pattern because he's overflowing in in praise as he meditates on the sufficiency of God's word. And he says, behold, I long for your precepts. Cause me to live in your righteousness. And that's all I want for you, Christ community. That's all I want for you. Is that you would long with deep hunger and appetite for the precepts of God's word. That's all I want. That you would taste and see that God is good through his word. That's all I want that you would see that the sacred text is more precious than gold and, and, and sweeter than honey. That's all I want. That you would be able to say, you would be able to echo with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day because you understand that what we hold in our hands isn't just some book, but a portal the very power and presence of God himself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word bites and it cuts and it stings and it wounds and it breaks and it mends and it heals and it soothes, and it satisfies, and it sanctifies. Thank you for bruising us, but yet bandaging up the bruise that you made and making us more healed and holy in the end. And Christ, I pray that you would help us to be richly indwelt with your word, that we would alter our understanding of what it means to have a relationship with you, that it has to happen through your word, that we would alter our relationship to your word, that we would see it as the IV drip line of our souls upon which we depend moment by moment, second by second. Oh Lord, let us be a glad people, a joyful people, a needy people, because those things are one and the same. The more needy we are, the more we experience your grace. And the more grace we experience, the more glad we are. Help us to be those kinds of people. Always and only for the glory of your name.